0: We're going to be in Hebrews today, by the way, so we're taking a pause on our series through Ruth for just one week. We'll be back in the book of Ruth uh, next Sunday. We have three more weeks to go in that. Um, But before we get going um, today with the sermon, um, I want to introduce uh, someone that you guys probably all already know. Uh, This is uh, Jeremy Appelt, Um, if you haven't met him. Um, If you haven't met him before, hopefully before you leave today, you can uh, get to meet him. Jeremy does a million things for the church um, and is probably one of the truest, most servant-hearted people I've ever met in my entire life. I don't say that just because I'm related to him, although both of those things are true. Um, But uh, today, as we dig into the Word, um, let's just pray together, and we'll pray for Jeremy as he prepares to preach. Father God, we thank you that you are good and that your promises are sure. Um, Lord, as we look in your word today, we recognize that it is um, a spiritual book, a spiritual word that you have inspired, and so we need the Spirit's help um, to open our eyes, to see it, to understand it, to believe it, and receive it in faith, and we pray for your help in our hearts today to do all those things, and we pray that you would um, bless your word among us today, and Lord, make us more faithful to Christ, and we thank you. Uh, For this privilege to be called into the body of Maranatha together, to be called into the body of uh, the Bride of Christ alongside one another. Uh, We pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen.
1: Thanks, David. Well, good afternoon. It's a beautiful day today. Um, As David said, we're not going to be in Ruth. We are going to be in the New Testament, uh, the book of Hebrews. So if you have issues finding it, um, it's okay. It's about near the end of Hebrews, you're going to follow First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And then if you've hit James, you've gone one book too far. So while you're turning there, as just a quick background or overview of Hebrews, because I don't have time to go through 11 chapters today with you guys, I'm just going to give you a quick fly overview of what we would learn so far in the story. So first off, Hebrews was, was written to Jewish Christians facing intense persecution. Throughout the book, the author keeps imploring the believers to look to Christ as the ultimate picture of salvation and encouragement to endure through his faithful example and service. He does this in a few separate ways. In chapters 1 through 2, he says that Jesus is greater than all the angels, for he is one with the Father. In chapters 3 through 4, he shows that Jesus is greater than Moses in the promised land of Canaan in chapters 5 to 7 jesus is greater than the levitical line of priests and even greater than the mysterious priest king of jerusalem Melchizedek, mentioned in genesis 14. this then leads to the final portion of chapters 8 through 10 which shows that jesus is the greater than the entire sacrificial system and the old covenant so as i said the whole point of the book is an exhortation for believers to endure in current sufferings and struggles of the world and to fix their gaze on the great trailblazers of the faith and the great trailblazer himself, Jesus Christ. In fact, the first 10 chapters are basically the deep theological arguments, while chapters 11 through 13 are heavy with encouragement and exhortation. Chapter 11, is what we'd call the great hall of faith for anyone who's read it before. This names many of the great witnesses or martyrs or examples of the faith throughout the Old Testament up to the reader's time frame. So as I said, the whole point the author keeps trying to get to is that Christ is powerful. He is magnificent, and he's currently a reigning Savior in heaven. Now that's just a quick overview of the book of Hebrews. But you ask, how do we fit this into Ruth? We're jumping out, jumping about a thousand plus years and across multiple nations and through countless genealogies to get to a completely different group of people. They couldn't possibly be linked together except for the fact they're within the Bible, right? Well, that's a great question. As I was preparing for today, I was trying to think how do these two things fit together and we're not just jumping forward for the sake of jumping off for a break in the study. When I was preparing the sermon, I realized a few ways these could be actually linked together pretty well. First, by way of the audience, I've already said the primary audience is Jewish Christians who would know Ruth and Naomi were and the entirety of the Old Covenant. Another link would be that Ruth could easily fit in with the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. She easily fits with the likes of Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Samson, and Rahab. Another link, if you give me a third, would be that the book of Ruth and the rest of the Old Testament is filled with types and shadows or things that point to the greater fulfillment in Christ himself. And a slight spoiler alert, but we'll get there next week, is Boaz is a great example of this. He shows Christ as Ruth's kinsman-redeemer in the story. And perhaps a final link, if you'll give me just one more, is that Ruth and Boaz's faithful life of obedience and trusting God, we get the line of Judah or the line of kings. Without them, we wouldn't have the likes of Obed, which leads to Jesse, which leads to David and Solomon, later on to Joseph, all the way down to Jesus Christ. So that's just a few ways these books are linked together pretty well. Now all of that was introduction, just because I don't have time to go into the first 11 chapters, but I highly recommend going through this with a spouse or a friend and a good commentary. There's a lot of great meat in the bones of this book. And it hopefully comes with the fact of giving you a greater view of our Savior today. As I said, chapter 12, which we're going to be today, comes in the field, heals the hall of faith or the great witnesses of the faith up to their point in time. This leads us to chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's holy word today. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says... Holy Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and it is timeless. I pray that you would write the eternal truth of it on our hearts today as we hear your word. Be with me as I speak that I would speak the truth boldly as you would have me do. Be with all who hear. May your spirit draw all these people and all of us to yourself today as we glorify Christ. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. So if I were to summarize my sermon today, I would summarize it as follows. As Christians, we are runners in a race marked by trials, which begins in this sin-ridden, corrupt world and ends with the incorruptible crowns and reigning with Christ in glory. Now let me repeat that one more time. As Christians, we are runners in a race marked by trials, which begin in the sin-ridden and corrupt world and ends with the incorruptible crowns and reigning with Christ in glory. Now I'm gonna get there by going through the text through the following outline. We're gonna go through, first, the event, secondly, the encouragement, third, an encumbrance, and fourth, the focus. I was trying to find a fourth E, but I couldn't find one. So we have event, encouragement, encumbrances, and focused all throughout the first two verses. So let's jump into the text here. Now the event, which will wrap everything we're gonna to do today, starts at the end of verse one. Let's read the end of it, starting with the and let us. So Hebrews 12, c and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life, and Christians are called many things throughout scripture. We are called things like pots of clay, sheep, wheat, and light to the world. But if we're honest, those things don't push us to action. They don't really keep our imaginations or make us move. I mean, sheep just eat and sleep and live. Wheat just grow. Light just permeates. It's an animate object. But a few times in, in the scriptures, we have a few other metaphors for the Christian life which push us to action and faithful obedience. We are called things like soldiers, boxers, wrestlers, and pilgrims many times. Several times, in fact, through the epistles, we are called runners in a race. Specifically, if you want to write these down to study later, in Galatians 2, Romans 9, Acts 13, and Second Timothy 4. So Galatians 2, Romans 9, Acts 13, Second Timothy 4. So on the heels of mentioning this great cloud of witnesses, which hopefully you'll read later on tonight in chapter 11, who have finished the race previously, the author lumps the readers and us in with them. Reminding them that as a Christian, we are told to live a life of faithful obedience like runners who want to run for a prize. Now, I don't want us to miss this. Far too often, we have these coffee mug cookie cutter expressions that we don't fully understand or think through in the Bible. We need to get the metaphor right or here or this passage will not push us to do anything new. What does the author mean here when he says, run the race? I wonder... Have you ever run a race before? Who here has ever run a 5K or a marathon? Cool. I have not run a marathon. That's really long. Um, but I have done a share of 5Ks over the years. Um, but I especially love uh, obstacle course races, um, Tough mutters, Spartan races, things like that. Um, which, if you don't know, Spartan races are about a 5 to 13 mile race marked out through the woods with obstacles sprinkled throughout the course. <coughs> The obstacles could range from things like climbing hills, running in the mud, lifting sandbags, climbing, monkey bars, carrying a fellow competitor, box of rocks, sandbags, whatever you kind of have designed for you that day. And yes, I know what you are thinking, and it is a complete blast, and if anybody afterward wants to train to do another, let me know afterward, because it has been a while and I want to get back into it. But how is the the Christian life like a race, you say? Now, the word used here for race is actually the Greek word called agonah, which literally means a struggle or a contest from beginning to end. It is where we get our word for agony, actually. And by saying this, the author is imploring the fact that the Christian life is an endurance struggle and race. It is a marathon. So let's think through the elements of a race, if you would. A race has a starting line a marked route or path or lane. It has competitors and participants. It has a finish line. Oh, and don't forget, every race has a prize at the end. But how does this fit into the Christian life, you say? Well, let's think through those elements, if you would. Like any race, a Christian life has a starting point. This point is the moment of your salvation. This happens when we place our faith in Christ and we are regenerated. We are then transformed into runners who are told to run the race that our God has already laid out before us. So if you're in Christ today, congratulations. Time to run. Let's get moving. What about the next point, a path or a marked route by the designer? Well, as we know in Psalm 139.16, our God has mapped out all of our days before our birth. This marked out path defines the arena by which you are specifically called to engage and be faithfully obedient to God in. It could be something like an occupation, like you're a teacher, an engineer, construction worker, or a stay-at-home mom. Or it could be defined by your relational roles. You could be a dad, a friend, a mother, a son, a grandson. It could be your particular avenue of suffering that has been marked out for you particularly by God. Physical ailments, financial struggles. These are all real issues and obstacles and, and things that God has mapped out beforehand for you to be faithfully obedient to him in as you work your way to glory. These are all opportunities to run your race. So you Christians, are the, one of the third pieces, are the competitors or the participants in this race. The people sitting next to you in Christ are your fellow participants and competitors. We are all racing together, so let's spur each other on. So we have the starting line, a marked out path, and competitors, but what about the finish line? The finish line of faith in our life is perfection, when we meet our Savior in glory. It comes at death, or when we are called home by God. And finally, all races have a prize at the end. The Christian life ends with a prize, if you didn't know. We'll expand on that a bit later, but at the end of this race, we as Christians will put on incorruptible, new, sinless bodies and crowns. We will be made perfect as we celebrate with other believers who came before and Jesus himself. We'll get to more on that part later. So yes, I think that race is a fitting metaphor used here. It fits the life of the believer very well. Not only do those elements, if you fit this metaphor, but if you think through what it takes to run a race, they fit well with the Christian life. It takes discipline and training to run a race. Both take focus and determination. You cannot run a race haphazardly or you will get hurt, lose or drop out prematurely. A race often has difficulty. It has highs and lows. It has cramps, sprains and bruises. It takes purpose and endurance to run the race, just like the Christian life. It's not a sprint that is short. It is a slogfest or a dying and corrupt world. When wrestling with sin, which lasts your little lifetime to complete, until we get to glory. So yes, metaphor for the event of a race is very fitting for your life today. So that is the event. We're going to move to the encouragement, which puts us back to the beginning of Hebrews 12. So let's jump back to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now that we've event-framed in our minds, we need to double back and understand the exhortation or encouragement we are called to stick with. The author begins this section of scripture by linking it to the previous chapter 11 called the Hall of Faith. That's what the therefore is there for, as we typically hear all the time. Remember, this is a letter format, which means the chapter breaks aren't there, there are no headings, there is nothing to break it. These are linked together in that point of view. The author is attempting to spur us and us the audience on with them to run a race with endurance, endurance by encouraging us to look to those who run before. Now, in a few places I've looked and heard, they've lumped these great cloud of witnesses with spectators who are rooting you on. And I've looked at a few other commentaries, and, and I wasn't really happy about that metaphor, and reading through John MacArthur and F.F. Bruce's commentaries, they tend to agree with me. Um, the issue is that when you think about spectators looking at you, cheering you on, you have this view that saints are looking down on us, we can pray to them, which is not in the Protestant faith. Nor is anywhere in the scripture mentioning the fact that people who've passed look down on us before and cheer us on. But one way you could see this, which I tend to agree with, is if you're looking at a race, like we've already been talking about, Think of it as people who've started the race ahead of you, people who've already run the race and are at the finish line celebrating. They've received their medals. They're celebrating with the king, and we can see them off in the distance. And it works really well if you've run a 5K or anything before. They have staggered start times in most events. Some people start at 7, 9, 11, and so on, and typically, not necessarily all the time, But those who start first, finish first in the race. Um, So that's one really good way to look at it. Because that goes very well with the rest of the scriptural narrative as a whole. and doesn't mess any lines up between this life and the life to come. So if you think about this great cloud of witnesses mentioned in chapter 11, we can think of them as people who have already run the race ahead of time. Who have already received their prize. But although those, mentioned in, those people mentioned in chapter 11 received a portion of the prize this life, they did not receive the full fulfillment until they received it in glory later. And let's just think about that. Abraham mentioned in chapter 11 left Ur by the command of God by faith and had a son Isaac, the child of promise. But he never got to see the true son of promise, Jesus Christ mentioned in Genesis 3.15. Moses led his people out of slavery, and made it to the footstool of the promised land, but he never got to see the true promised land and place of rest from sin and death. Ruth longs to be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer as she faithfully serves Naomi, but she never got to see her true redeemer who paid for her sins on the cross in Christ. These people ran their races faithfully And now they see in complete fulfillment of the promise in Christ's face. They reached the finish line already. Now they see what they ultimately longed and strove for. The audience and we as readers are encouraged to endure as we run the race to the finish line, like Abel, Samson, David, no matter how difficult the path that has been marked out for us leads. We are called to live a life, faithful endurance as we run the race that God has placed for us. So that gets us through the event and the encouragement. But there's a part here at the end of verse 1 that mentions something else in the middle. We get to a word called encumbrances. Let's double back, if we will, to let us. Starting in the middle of verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now the word here for weight is onken which denotes a bulk, just a giant, massive bulk of weight laid on your back. The NASB and the King James Version actually use the word encumbrances, which is basically an impediment or weight. Like the believers of old, Christians are called to lay something down when they start their faith in Christ and their journey. And this makes sense if we go back to the metaphor of a race. When running a race, if I'm going to run properly, I don't want to run it with any necessary weights. I don't want a bulky jacket or extra weight on my body. I don't want steel-toed boots. I don't want a weight vest. This will obviously not help me run my race efficiently or quickly. And that's the author's argument here. We are called to live our lives by faith and lay down the weights or burdens at the feet of Jesus of our old self. For the audience he's primarily speaking to, that leads to them denying the old sacrificial system that they already know. For us, we are also called to lay down our identities or anything that defined our old self before Christ. We are called to repent and lay down any of our dead works which marked our old way of thinking like them. We don't need to prove ourselves to God anymore. You are free. So we should lay aside that old self and the identity that goes along with it as a sinner. And expanding upon that a bit more, I would say we would encompass anything that does not help us run the race marked out for you today. Now, how do I identify those encumbrances? To do this, I came up with the question to simply ask, does this thing help me run a faithful race to glory? Or does it get in my way? Does it help me run, or does it cause me to slow down? As a quick example, does what I read or listen to or watch help me run? And be honest when you ask these questions. For we are called to lay aside these encumbrances and impediments which slow us down in our race to glory. We are trading them in for something better we will get later on, as we'll see at the end of this. So first we're called to lay aside encumbrances. Next we're called to lay aside sins. And by sins, he means individual sins, and yes, original sin nature. We are called to lay down and repent of our sin that still is within us and clings so tightly and entangles us. Things like the love of money, anger, bitterness, slander, gossip, and so on. These are weights and sins that seek our destruction. The idea here is that these weights, these sins, are like shackles that are wrapped around your ankles or a giant weight vest on our back. Obviously, this will hinder your running. With these on, you cannot run effectively. So we strain harder than we need to and we cannot go as fast as we would like. I've been reading uh, The Little Pilgrim's Progress with my kids recently. It's an adaptation of John Bunyan's um, great masterpiece, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. It follows everything extremely well, so if you're a parent here, I highly recommend it. Um, I've pro- I don't know how many times I've read it recently. <laughs> Micah loves it. Um, but in this story, it starts with a young boy named Christian who hears the gospel for the first time. When he hears the gospel, he merely asks, what can I do to be saved? He recognizes he is a sinner. And he recognizes his huge, giant pack on his back. It literally causes him to hunch over and towers over him. With that, evangelist tells him, you can get redemption and deliverance through the narrow gate along the pathway of salvation to the place of deliverance. So he embarks on his journey or race. While going, Christian falls into something called the Bog of Despond, which is just a huge mud pit. Just giant mud pit where countless pilgrims have fallen before. And Christian remarks that he sank more closely quickly because of this giant weight pushing him down. He is um, actually then helped out by a fellow pilgrim along the way. And on, then he starts his journey again, and wants to run, but once again remarks, I can't run as quickly as I want because of this weight on my back. His burdens force him to trudge at a slow pace. He makes his way through the narrow gate and walks through the pathway of salvation to the place of deliverance. And here something happens. As Christian walks up to the hill at the place of deliverance, he sees a wooden cross as he walks up to the hill, he sees his cross and he draws near and he notices something happening. As he begins to focus his eyes on the cross, his burden starts to fall off, which leads us to our final portion of the text, starting in the second verse, um, which is the focus. So we have the event, the encouragement, encumbrances, and finally, the focus, which is the culmination of all the things we've been studying so far. So let us read. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now, any great runner or anyone who wants to actually finish a race tells you you need to focus on the destination. I tell my son who's just starting to ride a bike, if you look left, you go left. If you look right, you go light right. If you look down, you're going to fall down. Um, he hasn't mastered yet, but he's doing really well at it. But racers is the same way, isn't it? If you're going to run a waste, so you look at one fixed point and you want to limit any distractions or you will trip up and fall. Think of a hurdler. If you're running hurdles, they don't tell you to focus on the hurdles, you focus past the hurdles, or you will trip and fall. And that's what we're called to do here. Here the author tells us that we are called to look to Jesus. And he mentions that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. By the founder, the author is indicating that he is a foundation or the author of our faith. This actually piggybacks off of Hebrews 2, uh, chapter 10 through 11, where he says the same phrase again. He's not only the founder of our faith, he's also the perfecter, or the finisher, or the ratifier of our faith. He ran the race perfectly before us. He even ran the race ahead of those mentioned in the Hall of Faith, if you read the book of Jude. But how did Jesus run the race of faith? I mean, he is the son of God. He is a sustainer of all things in the preeminence of the Father, as we read in Colossians 1. How did he run a race of faith? Why did he have to? Well, let's do a quick flyover of the Gospel story or Philippians 2. Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth to live the death and live the life we were called to live as our federal representative head. And he lived that life faithfully and perfectly. Jesus left a glorious kingdom to come to be a nomad and not have a pillow to lay his head. He gave it all for his people and for the glory of God. He encountered mocking, scourging, shame, pain, poverty, and loneliness, betrayal, losses of friends. But he did all that and entrusted himself to the Father in the plan of enduring the cross, despising the shame of it, Which is a horrendous disgraceful public death. He did all that in faith that the Father would be pleasing him as he says he is earlier. So yes, if we look at all those things, Christ definitely ran an endurance race of faith. But why? Let's read the end of verse 2 again. Focusing on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God or right hand of the throne of God. Do you see it there? Jesus ran his race with joy for a seat at the right hand of God the Father. He ran the race for a purpose. He focused on his and the Father's glorification at the finish line. And not only that, but he says he ran it with joy or great delight. That doesn't mean that Jesus did not have difficult circumstances or facing temptation. We have countless examples of him weeping over Lazarus or the sins of Jerusalem. He was betrayed by his friend, Judas. He faced horrible mocking. So you can't say that it was happiness here. He had a great delight in something bigger at the end, which was this seat. He was delighted in the Father and the Father was delighted in him. It was his joy to do the Father's will on his way to glory. And because of that, the Father placed him seated down, as it says in Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. And now he mediates for us as believers at the Father's side in 1 Timothy 2. He did it for joy of being a ruler and reigning, but also for bringing many sons and daughters with him. And that comes from John 17. You were in that picture of joy today. We are called to focus and fix our eyes on Jesus at the finish line as we will finally be made perfect there. Like Christians who have walked toward the cross before, we must repent of our sins and run the race today. Christian, as he notices the burden falling off his back, notices that the burden not only falls off, but falls into the pit, or a sepulcher, or the bottomless pit. It's never to be seen again. And for the first time in his life, Christian says he can run freely and move with ease, as his burden has been lifted by looking to Jesus. Now, true freedom doesn't come from running outside your marked lines, but from running the race the designer has made for you today in faithful obedience. And he enables us to run the race. So today, we are called, if you are in Christ, to run a race of faith and lay aside our weights and sins along the way. We are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is waiting for us to meet him at the finish line. And at that point, we will be perfect Like, he is perfect. That's the prize we focus on. Now, in closing, I just have a few quick questions for you to write down and ask yourself. So first, today, ask yourself, am I even in the event or race? Meaning, have I bent the knee in faith to Christ? Have I been justified by grace, by faith, and his perfect work for me? If you are not in the race, repent today, pray for mercy. Ask any of us who've been on stage today or your neighbor. um, We'd love to pray with you and talk you through that. Secondly, what encumbrances and sins do I need to lay aside today? Confess your sins and lay aside your weight today and run the race freely. Third, where is my focus? Are my eyes fixed on Jesus in the finish line or are my eyes fixed on earthly things which will perish. Everything in this world is passing away. Run towards the incorruptible crown in Christ today. So the church today, Christ is better, the race of faith is worth running as we've read, and the life of faith is worth living with joyful and faithful obedience. And if we persevere to the end, we will receive our commendations as well. Friends, we look to Jesus today, and as Christians, we are those runners who are marked by trials, but we look forward to the end where we receive incredible crowns and reign with Christ in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy, holy word. Thank you uh, for the example of those who've already run the race ahead of us and those who run a race along our side who can encourage us along the way. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the founder, the author of our faith today, who ran the race perfectly, and lived the life we were called to live, and died the death that we deserve to die for us. You are good, and your word is true. Lord, thank you again for this lovely afternoon. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.